Welcome. Bonjour. Vous écoutez le podcast Dirty Feet sur les ondes de No More Radio. You're listening to the Dirty Feet podcast on the No More Radio Network. Nous sommes vos animateurs et animatrices. We are your hosts, Alison Burns, J.D. Papillon et Stéphanie Morin-Robert. Listen in. Écoutez. We're going to move you. This week's episode of Dirty Feet Podcast is coming to you from Edmonton, Alberta. I am currently sitting in the Mile Zero Dance Studio here with Jerry Morita, who is uh, the artistic director of the of the company here. And uh, we're going to be talking a bit about herself and about Mile Zero Dance and the incredible things that they're doing here in Edmonton and beyond. Jerry, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for coming all the way out here just for this. <laughs> it's my pleasure. It's already been worth it. Um, so I would love to start by talking about you and your artistic history. You come originally from uh, Saskatchewan, yeah. and you studied dance at the Simon Fraser University, and you've performed and worked all over the place, including Vancouver, Montreal, uh, here in Edmonton, in Tokyo, in Turkey. Mm. Uh, so let's... Uh, and and. Let's talk about uh, what kind of artistic practice you have as uh, working a lot with um, contact improvisation and somatic work. Um, mm -hmm. Where did you start after Simon Fraser? Um, well, right after Simon Fraser, even in my last term, I was really involved with EDAM. So that's uh, Peter Bingham and the contact improv company there. And I was really attracted to the form of contact and equally to pure improv and site-specific work. And I've really continued with those things. And yeah, I worked at EDAM for about a year before moving to Montreal. And then Montreal really opened up my ideas about what contemporary dance could be in a good way. Um, yeah, compared to Vancouver at that time, it was kind of restrictive. And yeah. Can you tell us a bit about who you were working with in Montreal for our Montreal listeners who might recognize? Um, I was really based in Studio 303 and the, you know, the people in the milieu around there. I knew Paul Kasky back from Simon Fraser days and uh, Miriam, who I worked with quite a lot, and she danced with me in a couple of things. And that whole format of really combining arts, which was also big at Simon Fraser with their Center for the Arts really having an interdisciplinary focus. I found that 303 was able to continue bringing other artistic sensibilities into dance and bringing other artists and audience mm -hmm. to dance that I still think is really important and keeps dance from being too small and inward and sort of uh, incestuous. Right. I'm sensing some foreshadowing now as we're going to be speaking about Mile Zero a little bit later and similar values there. We all have sex with each other constantly. <laughs> <laughs> um, great. So so then, then you've done tours as well. So tours through Canada, tours through Turkey. Uh, uh, in what context were these? Were these independent projects? Were these working for companies? Um, most of the work I've done has been 
um, independent or self-driven or small collaborations, either with other dancers or with other artists. Um, yeah, like I just don't have it in me to be a company dancer. And even being like a freelance dancer, I found really, really uh, <laughs> compromised my my values as a human too much. And I would just absorb the the choreographer's energy and neuroses way too much. So, yeah, most of my work has been very self-driven. Um, when we went to Turkey, that was with a, a lighting designer I was working with who started a dance festival at his university in Ankara. And it had kept going for 10 years and became this, like, international dance festival. And so I just had a little project I was working on with... The, his lights and a lot of it has come along like that like I haven't been you know receiving massive touring dollars I just go places that something comes up and it's usually connected in a very personal way it's not like a producer or presenter phoning me up it's like a friend who's like hey you should come to my town so I worked a lot with Hideo Arai in Tokyo and Mari Osanai who's in northern Japan and when I lived over in Japan for four years, I worked with those guys in studied Noguchi Taiso, which is very, um, it's like a precursor to Buto, but it's got different ethical values behind it. They, Noguchi is like a, it's a pure form. You try to be a water bag and at the same time you try to dispel all negative energy and tension in the world. <laughs> as opposed to Bhutto, which is the dance of darkness, which gives you permission to get very dark and dirty. And so I found studying Noguchi really um, to be a good base technique that I keep going back to, even though I don't study it all the time anymore. I imagine this interdisciplinary passion also comes into your work. Um, does that happen through through you you know, seeking out other art forms that you can involve? Does that come through collaborating with people from different fields? It comes from a lot of collaborative efforts. And I guess for me, dance is never really enough um, because I'm a contact dancer. I can just go jam and have fun and have a community and hang out anytime I want and be done with it. Like, why does dance need to be performed and seen by an audience? I find those to be really um, opposing things that I'm always dealing with. So um, I try to approach dance as a full sensory experience for audiences. And that involves looking at other art forms and how they involve the senses in different ways. And then how, how do you go about finding uh, the people that you want to work with? I hold international auditions that are always open. <laughs> no, it, it's, it's just random. It's just who I meet. I'm really kind of social in that way. And if I see somebody whose work I really like, I'll you know, approach them and ask them if they want to do something. And because I, I'm able to do paperwork... I find that I'm often the person initiating, mm. you know, funding and, you know, setting things up. And I, I can get things happening <laughs> in a small way, like not in a huge way. 
but I can I can generate enough money to hire people that I like, which is really fun. Um, like Wendy McNeil was a musician who used to live here. Now she lives in Sweden. And she was trained as a dancer for a few years and then went into like accordion and songwriting. And we did this like two-year collaboration. It was just really bizarre. Um, the kind of thing that you don't have the chance to do all the time, like to work with somebody over a long period of time with like really merging aesthetics and having those collisions that happen on the way, but going through it artistically. And I find that kind of work really invigorating. And mm, I think it's, it's more fun than having like the wizard of Oz creative genius thinking of everything themselves. Mm. And then commissioning somebody to, to create an element for the work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like to dive in with other people that are willing to get in early. As an improviser and collaborative artist, if you ever want to like be the hero, all you need to do is show up at the end and, <laughs> and add your touch of genius. And everyone's like, oh my God, that's so perfect. How did you think of it? And it's like, well, because everyone else did the homework. So getting in, you know, in the early stages is, is harder in some ways, but I think you get more of a, a combined result that's not, yeah, over-directed. And not something you could have conceived of necessarily from the get-go, something unique. Yeah, you never know. And I'm pretty open. Like, I've got... Well, no, I'm not. I, <laughs> I, <laughs> I can be very autocratic, too, but... It, mm, I tend to have a very like flowing way of working. I'm, I don't have a lot of preconceptions until I reach my aesthetic limits, and then it's like absolute no, or else like it's a big challenge point. Yeah, so I'm quite open to what other people bring. Mm-hmm. And then, and then that's that's also um, that that kind of contradiction between the art for for the sake of the art and the art for the audience when yeah. you, when you find that point where you have to start considering that or yeah yeah, yeah cuz i can always go jam and touch other people anytime i want and be happy <laughs> like why go through the torture of going through an artistic process for a niche market of people which dance is unless you're really like digging into something that's artistically important. Mm-hmm. So is it important to you then that, that your work has an impact on people and what, what is your ideal impact? Um, well, it's been really interesting in Edmonton because Edmonton's not, um, it's not Montreal. Like there's not a dance scene, like the dance scene, like you've talked to us all now pretty much. <laughs> Yes, I've, I've had the pleasure of speaking with Jake Hasty from uh, Toy Gun Dance Theater and Ainsley Hillard from Good Women Dance. So I'm moving through the Edmonton uh, And then the, a lot of the older companies, like Brian is the last sort of survivor, but there's you know been generations of people who've gone, come and gone, come and gone, come and gone, got old, disappeared. And there's no institutional memory here. So it's... It's a very non-dance focused place to work. I put it that way. And so the audiences that we receive at shows are not necessarily dance audiences. They're mile zero audiences. And they've been following 
our work and my fetishes for a number of years. And some of these people who come out, uh, like we're just their community. We're just a place they can go that's safe and warm and has some really weird, unexpected things happening all the time. Um, yeah, I think that impact is just as important as, you know, impressing a 15-year-old girl who does lots of pirouettes and then she suddenly realizes that she can also roll on the floor. Mm-hmm. That's fun too. But the impact on everyday people who, you know, might be social misfits or they might be lonely or, you know, not artistically inclined at all who manage to come out to a show and it becomes a part of the the social fabric of their lives. Like, I think that's more important over long term now than, you know, having an impressive five-star show that gets a good review from a newspaper that's going to maybe uh, exist for another year. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Do you I'm, know what I mean? I'm so, I'm so excited to, to get to talking about uh, the Dirt Buffet Cabaret, <laughs> which is one such event that, that you're talking about with this, this community that you've created for Mile Zero. Um, but before I get there, mm-hmm. I would love to paint uh, a better picture of Mile Zero Dance itself. So Mile Zero Dance has been around for, what, 20 years before you got involved? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so it's been established in Edmonton for a while. Can you tell us a bit about the founders? So, not really. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know much. Um, So, Deborah Shantz and Andrea Rubinovich were the the co-founders, and Andrea is now general manager at Maskell Dance in Vancouver, and she's a hip-hop teacher. And Deborah kind of stopped doing dance completely, and they were both gone before I got here. And it... The company was originally set up as kind of a the first job for grads of the Grant McEwen dance program. So they would do school tours and shows with like the recent grads before they moved on. So this this current vision of Mile Zero is that your influence the the more three hundred three like multidisciplinary mm. um, with workshops and and community building. The company has a really. Um, clear and yet open mandate. So it it really does allow me to do whatever I've wanted with it and easily achieve the mandate. Um, because we're, we're in a city that doesn't offer a lot of contemporary dance, we find ourselves doing, like we used to use dance labs, similar to Le Groupe La Place Royale's format. And yeah, we've done a lot, lots of other things that in... A larger city, one company would just do one of those things, mm. but we do like 12. So in a way, we're always overextending, but in another way, it's like just trying to give the community something that's needed. And as soon as there's another company that can provide those things, it's really easy to pass it off then. Yeah, because you you also offer support to artists, emerging artists. You offer these events for you know very easy participation for people, mm. yeah. um, and and again classes and workshops and yeah, lots lots going on. Um, we've done a salon series off and on, which is very similar to the Dirt Buffet. It's like a three hundred three vernissage, but then it kept getting bigger and bigger, and we were doing it in you know, 200 seat theaters. And 
what happened was the costs of production got so high that we weren't able to do them as often. And taking it back down to the studio level and holding a monthly event, well, we're doing two monthly events now, I find that that's more impactful for the arts community to have a circulation for people to try new ideas in front of a public as opposed to presenting their package. <laughs> Can we talk about your transition into becoming artistic director after working with Mile Zero Dance for a couple of years? It was, it was a pretty quick transition. Basically, the artistic director left. I was artist-in-residence for a period of time. And then um, Bobby Todd was artistic director, and she moved to Calgary. And when she moved, uh, there was about a six-month crossover period where I was learning things, and then it was like, boom, <laughs> just thrown into the fire. This scaling back down of the, of the production to this more monthly, more beneficial to the community mm-hmm. event, um, in, in my mind kind of parallels what you were speaking about before about um, being more interested in that community offering with art than the five-star newspaper review. Mm. Um, how do you see the company evolving or, or what does the company need to maintain to keep that kind of support for the community here in Edmonton? That's a really difficult question. Um, like our activity is based around space. It is so hard to get decent dance space in this city. And, and we were renting out large theaters and competing with every theater company in town for those times. And then when we moved here in March... We're we, here in Little Italy. In, to this space, yeah. yeah. So we had a really, mm, you know, a very nice energy space before but it was super cheap and kind of crappy and we couldn't do any evening events. And when we got this space, it's like, okay, everything is going to happen here because it's costing us so much money. We're not going to rent any outside spaces. And so in a way, the space dictates how we enact the mandate because of um, just nitty gritty financial reasons. Um, I would be just as happy like dancing on bridges for a year and like floating around but it, it just feels like you know to have a space you have to hold it and to hold the space you know you have to fill it with art mm-hmm. <laughs> speaking of filling it with art you've got a mural on one wall of the studio <laughs> it's just not something you could do if you got a floating space yeah that's for sure and that's just because we couldn't afford the paper <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you were also telling me before we started about the, the lighting in here and this, this concept for performance lighting um, that's less about performance lighting and more about lighting. Right. Well, you know, we're all working on a shoestring now because even though Justin has taken over, it's going to take him a few years to fix the damage that's been done. So it's like we're still living in conservative climate for at least another year or two, Right. And so how do we spend more of our money on art and artists and less of our money on, like, electricians <laughs> and, and rentals and stuff mm-hmm. like that? So we're trying to set up the space instead of being a black box, which dancers are used to, feels very safe and comfortable, trying to set it up more like a white box so that 
it's equally accessible to like video artists, film people, um, stand up, visual artists, like in the front, we're setting up the front space, which is uh, visible from the street to be uh, viewed from the street. So we've done some performing inside that little box and people set up chairs outside and watch. Um, and so the lighting is more like gallery lighting, just track lights with really bright halogens that are focusable. And then that way we don't have somebody like working the lighting board, creating magic. It's more like the magic has to come direct from the artist. And it, it's just, uh, yeah, like you can still make magic. It's just you don't have as many technical means to do so. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Fair enough. It's not that magic is cheating. It's just um, the magic is in the performer first and foremost. And because we have a limited amount of budget, we want to make sure that the artist gets as much of it as they can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Otherwise, it, it's just not even feasible. Like when we went into for our main stage show last year, we used a, a theater that had a proper lighting grid and everything, and we didn't use any of their stuff. We didn't use their sound system. We didn't use their lights. Like, we brought in our chandeliers, and we brought in record players and all of our own stuff, and it was all controlled by the performers on stage. Just because it's not just revealing, like, opening up the the side curtain and showing like, oh, there's a backstage. It's like the whole stage and backstage is completely combined and equal. And we're improvising often as well. And like we're making things in front of you and you get to see not just the mechanism, but you get to see the junk and like the messiness of it and the obstacles and even like danger that it creates. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's a that's it's, an aesthetic. In itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like uh, after years and years and years of seeing like black Marley side lights, black background, ooh, floating dancer. It's just like ah, our whole lives we're surrounded by crap and objects, whether they're like special or not. And the only way you can have an empty room to dance in is if you're in a dance studio or on a dance stage. And I was like, that doesn't relate to me as a human. Like, we're surrounded by crap all the time. Hmm. And objects and, like, changing clothes. Like, it just... I guess it's closer to, like, a European post-dramatic theater sort of mentality where... Um, the amount of stuff that we have in our lives is reflected in the space. And you're a human first and a, and a dancer second? Yeah, and a dancer isn't an ideal human. It's not an ideal. It's not like a heavenly thing. Like, I would have kept doing ballet if I believed that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and as far as I understand, a lot of uh, the workshops that you offer offer inclusivity as mm -hmm. well. Yeah. Um, so when I went to Tokyo, I went there to study with Saburo Teshigara, who's the director of Karas, and he is so amazing. And I managed to take his workshops in Tokyo, and he would have like 30 people jumping around the joint, 
doing like the craziest, like almost cultish things. And it was super fun. And I couldn't understand half of what he was saying because <laughs> I just moved. And what was amazing was that it wasn't an audition process, but you had to fill out all this paperwork to get into the class. And he didn't want too many dancers. And he would only take like one or two choreographers out of 30 people. Like he wanted to have a cross section of humanity and to have like people dancing. And the results were phenomenal. Like the dancing was so amazing that there's something about how, you know, dancers actually can help non-dancers or beginning dancers dance. And it actually makes the dancers more aware of what they know and it gives them empathy. <laughs> yeah. You know, instead of like this thing, you know, this, this Foucault dance class where you're all like looking at the teacher who's in charge of your life and comparing yourselves in the mirror and sure. judging your value as a dancer. And it's like, what's your value as a person? Like, where's your humanity level? How are you opening your senses and your ability to communicate with other people. So do you maintain that philosophy, if not the, uh, the quotas here at the, the studio? <laughs> I have less selection here than I would in Tokyo, maybe. Um, but yeah, the, the dancers here are a real mix between um, you know, trained professionals who've worked all over the place, who've somehow ended up in Edmonton. Maybe they have a dying grandparent, maybe they've moved here because they have kids now like like life changes that can sometimes turn dancers into really interesting people <laughs> just sometimes and and sometimes they already are but um yeah like the mix of people we get here is very changing and it's very bizarre like there's um really great dancers in the theater community who are, you know, triple threat people who, for some reason, would, would occasionally do contemporary dance shows with me instead of musical theater, which I find amazing. <laughs> That's exciting. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you could be doing dinner theater right now, um, Richard Lee. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. And I mean, as far as quotas go, it's more important to me in Edmonton to try to integrate, you know, like the Aboriginal population over time, like, which, you know, there's not a lot of contemporary Aboriginal dancers in Edmonton, but there's a lot of hip hop dancers that come from that community. So I think as far as quotas go, that would be a more useful quota. Yeah, because everybody's learning, so, um, yeah. Now let's talk about events. I mean, the event yeah. that I've had the, the pleasure <laughs> of experiencing is the Dirt Buffet Cabaret, which happened uh, last night in this space, and mm -hmm. uh, I had the pleasure of experiencing several different, uh, six other acts, and then performing mm -hmm. myself, which was wonderful. Um, what's the, the origin of this event? Um, well, this has been... Gordetsky, and I met him when he was uh, training at U of A in the drama department, and now he does a lot of stand-up and comedy work with Rapid Fire Theater, um, and he's a very talented mover as well, and he was always interested in Butoh as a dancer, and improv and combining more 
physicality. And we'd been doing these salons for, you know, a number of years. And then we got this new space and I was starting to think about how to do the salons in the space. And he approached me about the dirt buffet. And I was like, yeah, try it. And so that was like in May, I think, or April, maybe last year. And, you know, we just figured out how to do it really rough and ready. Like just, I was like, here's the formulas, what you got to do, like nothing over 10 minutes. Try not to have more than eight acts or else nobody will get paid enough and just stuff like that. And just allowing it to happen and evolve. And so now that it's like the eighth one yesterday. Great. And it's really, yeah, it's really got its own energy. And, and it seems, it seems like some of the philosophy behind it is that it's a, uh, free for all in terms of like uh, taking chances on performers mm-hmm. and also uh, yeah. their disciplinary choices, like allowing people to be a bit a bit weird, a bit experimental with uh, with their work. Yeah, and it seemed like the crowd was really buying into it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely, they were really going along for the ride. Those kind of events to me are like artistic research, so I go to them you know, really like looking for things that are going to impress me in new ways, like looking for the unexpected things. Um, yeah, because it's hard to get interdisciplinary people in the same room like that. Like I don't go to the poetry slams, but when the, the poetry people come here, it's really interesting. And what you were speaking about way back when, um, in the interview, uh, about, about, well, I mean, I would call them general public, but peop- yeah, people who, who aren't necessarily used to seeing this kind of thing or, or who have become a part of this community because maybe they do something with their lives that's completely separate, but this is, this is something that they enjoy. And, mm-hmm. and to have those people uh, you know, interact with me at intermission and, and thank me and, mm. and, and feel this um, lack of a boundary and yeah. real comfort and welcomeness, it was really yeah. wonderful. Yeah, you can't really slip out the back door and go suck your thumb after a performance here. But also that the, <laughs> the audience doesn't have that that feeling of of um, hierarchy right. or uh, anything like that. We're just people in a room sharing yeah. art. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it works really well. I like I like the format and. Mm, it's experimental, and so you see people who, like the stand-up guys, sometimes they're really well-known stand-up guys. I don't know, I don't go to stand-up shows. But when they come here, they'll try something that they've never tried before, that they wouldn't do under you know, the pressure and expectations of a stand-up show. And so you see people pushing their own boundaries as well in a safe way. Um, yeah, safe. Yeah. It's a very safe environment. And like our public that's been following us for years is used to being triggered and pushed and watching things that are a bit on the edge. Like they're, I'd say they're pretty sophisticated. And I don't know if they have the, you know, vocabulary to describe what they're seeing all the time. Or they probably do. They probably do better than I do. Um, but they've really gone through a journey if they've been with us for a few years. Because, like, the Dirt Buffet, I was telling people they should go to it because you'll always see nudity, but it's going to be... Un- <laughs> but it's going to be uncomfortable. And then there's almost always a gross liquid 
and you never know where in the show, but it just about... Was there liquid yesterday? Uh, I don't know if there, was, there was, but I, I did hear about a, um, a Happy Meal being blended at the last edition and, and yeah. drunk, so... Wow. Richard Lee. <laughs> <laughs> amazing, amazing. Uh, can you tell me a bit about the other, the other monthly event that takes place here? Uh, the Subarctic Experimental... Subarctic Improv and Experimental Arts. And so this is Jen Mesh and Alan Belchidis curating. Allison is a amazing saxophone player. And Jen is a dancer, choreographer, improviser who's relocated from the States. And they've got a lot of music connections. So whereas Ben Ben's connections are more in the theater and comedy realm, um... The subarctic is like dance meets all kinds of audio. And then they also, like the, the painting here, the mural is uh, the visual artist. So it's like audio, dance, and visual artists. And then the idea is that they're improvising together sometimes, alone sometimes. Does the cast change from month to month? Or is- yeah, yeah. And it's longer form. Like there's some 20-minute pieces in that one. Um, whereas the Dirt Buffet is more like a variety show, boom, 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 cabaret. But they, yeah, they both really stretch (laughs) the possibilities of live performance. And there's crossover in the crowd, but the crowd is also distinctly different. Mm. Yeah. I wish he could stay. (laughs) I know, I'm very intrigued. Uh, I would like to perhaps talk a bit about, we've covered uh, education, we've covered performance. What about um, the the support that you offer emerging artists? Other than these these opportunities to perform, Mm. uh, what what form does that take? Um, I don't know, it depends on the person. Like sometimes people are like, hey, do you want to be my mentor? And I'm like, sure. And then we meet, and then they don't listen to anything I say. <laughs> and so I'm like, well, okay. I guess that's one kind of mentor. Like, I'm, I'm laid back. And so, but at the same time, I'm really uncompromising. And we were doing artisan residence in the old space because our space was dirt cheap and virtually useless for performance. So it's like we had all this time. So it's like do you want to do a piece here, have some free space? But we can't really do that here, Um, which I kind of miss, because that was like one form of getting things up and going. Um, Yeah, I mean, it depends on the people. Like, people learn to do by doing, and Mm -hmm. I think people need the freedom to find their own voice and to just do it. And it's nice to have, like, mentors and people that you can check in with but like even when I phone up my mentors and go sit down it's like mm, I don't listen to what they say like I'm just using them as a sounding board I'm not really listening and yeah like watching the pieces in Dirt Buffet over a period of time it's like there's a whole generation of people that are discovering the like the techniques and voices from the 60s and 70s that were never fully recorded on VHS <laughs> and or in any way like they were just written down like Yoko Ono's cut piece and things like this are really popular again and they're being rediscovered and nothing I can say is going to help a performer 
figure that out. They have to figure it out for themselves. And their own um, open approach is what's going to feed the work, I find. I don't know. I started teaching contact again. That's been my way of just kind of, I don't know. I'm very judgmental, so I'm always trying not to pass as much judgment as I feel or think and to just, like, be more patient and quiet. <laughs> because, you know, like dancers, take dancers to a dance show, they're like, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I hate this. I hate yeah, that. But have opinions. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, and it's like, you know, you lose um, your freshness in your own medium. Yes. And so, like, I don't even like going to dance shows very much. Um, I'd rather go to like film or visual arts or a music gig because then I can just enjoy myself and still receive artistic influence. Yeah. It's, it's funny, right? Like, I don't think novelists are like, Oh, I love all novels. Yeah. Well, it's, it's hard to absorb it, uh, without, without analyzing, without being critical, without relating it to everything else that you know about the form <laughs> And I think it's really hard now for young people. Um, I I have huge opinions about the education system and how the universities are pumping out half-baked people all the time and, you know, giving them the impression that there's a job market out there when really there just isn't. And it's more about entrepreneurship and your ability to starve to death and make make shit happen by yourself. Well, that's it. Like so much of it is yeah. by doing. You learn by doing, as you were saying, and that yeah. happens after school. Because you know, even when you're in school, it's obvious that the people benefiting most are your teachers who are getting this great salary. Sure. And it should be free. Like when I did university dance, it was the cheapest way to take class. And I did the math. It's like I want to take three classes a day, and I want to do this and this. It's like oh. I better go to university. And the math doesn't work now. And plus you're spending like four years of your life. It's like your prime, prime time. Like you should be out there just, you know, hitting the stage, doing your stage time. What is it? 10,000 hours. Mm. <laughs> is, that, is that from the Beatles there? The Yeah, that's, I think that's uh, how long they spent. Steven Pinker talks about that it's a thing in japan too it's oh, like yeah? that you have to spend the time like dojo training is all about just putting in your time but for dancers it's not it's not your studio time it's your stage time that matters like nobody cares if you went to class in the morning like can you bring it at 8 p.m and you're gonna need that <laughs> class so that you can well, so you don't hurt don't yourself maybe, maybe 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 10 a.m class doesn't work for you mm -hmm. You know, like it's more important to bring it at 8 p.m. and to be like full on as a performer and to, yeah, like that's your art. Again, that goes back to mm -hmm. your your contradicting ideas of your of your make myself happy, mm -hmm. dancing my contact improv and create work that somebody's supposed to see. Yeah, I mean, nobody cares what you do for your self care. Like, you know, you could drink Slurpees and smoke a joint. I don't care. Like, if I'm watching the show, I just, I'm just watching the show. I don't have all the background. It's like, I know, you know, great performers who take amazing care of themselves. But 
that's not important to know when you're watching the show. Sure. You know, and as far as like them teaching other people, it's like, yeah, self-care. Everybody has their own brand of self-care. Um, some people, it involves a lot of self-medication. But, um, yeah, other people, it involves taking technique class every day. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting over a period of years, just seeing how like some things are important and some things are less important over time. What would you say, it, with that in mind in particular, to, to I mean, you're, you're spewing a lot of great advice for a young dancer <laughs> right now, but what is, what is something that you thought was important that is not, and something vice versa? You didn't think it was important and is. Like, honestly, like I spent, you know, like pretty much my whole adult life as a dancer thinking I was fat mm. and that my body was wrong and that I wasn't good enough. And like the whole mentality of looking in a mirror is um, detrimental to a lot of dance. And I think that a lot of contemporary dance is really based on vanity. And if you look closely at it, it's like, is this, what's the purpose of performing this? Is this like a glorified selfie <laughs> that I'm performing in front of other people? Or like, like, what do I want to really communicate or share? Mm-hmm. And, you know, like the self-care part, I think, is more for yourself and doesn't need to be performed. And you don't need to apologize for it. Like, whatever your self-care is, is your thing. And it should be like your precious little egg. But then the stuff that you share, you should really share. And, yeah, my opinions about dance and art changed a lot after I had kids. Just because um, I had less time to spend focused on art. And when, when I did have time for art, I was really, really, really hardcore about it. Um, and I probably got back into it too quickly instead of just taking the time to breastfeed my baby and not make her cry I was like you know frantically trying to pump and perform (laughs) pump and perform (laughs) and a work in progress yeah a very long work in progress but you know it's really hard when you're um, a parent and it just it made me be highly selective about my, my social life and the people that I hung out with. And, yeah, I just really restricted everything else that I did so that I could do art. Um, and my kids have this amazing art sense now. Yeah, they, they're very good critics. <laughs> and then, yeah, in Japan, um, the mentality is very different which influenced me about the difference between amateur and professional there. It's really hard to get funding um, if you're doing any contemporary art form. So people I was working with were really great artists, but they would have to support their work by working full-time and rehearsing at night in a play school or a rec center. And, yeah, doing great work that way. And so... When I came back to Canada, it was like, what's everybody complaining about all the time? Like, just, you know, just do the work. (laughs) Like, for me, the main thing is the work and that, you know, there's a million ways you can support yourself in 
your life and things you could do with your life and your self-care and all that. But, um, yeah, we, we have to spend a lot of time justifying ourselves to granting bodies and to people who don't even really like art. It's like trying to explain what dance is, like just to get an operating grant. It's like, mm, you know, I could be like digging potatoes right now and it would be more satisfying <laughs> than grant writing. And I'd probably make more money. <laughs> there, yeah, there seems to be a running theme of, of dualities and, calls and integration mm. in, in yourself and, and in the community and yeah. within art forms. Just, yeah, yeah. just it, nothing has to be one thing. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's why I'm so conflicted. It's my dualities. <laughs> there you go. All of them. All of them. <laughs> Uh, what do you see uh, for the, the future for Mile Zero Dance here in Edmonton and for yourself? Well, you know, really, Edmonton's undergoing probably the largest dance renaissance I've ever witnessed. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's, uh, it's good. Like, the summer here is really, the summers are very amazing. And I'm happy to see more and more site-specific work happening because it really freaks out the audience and it puts dance right in their face. Um, I'm committed to getting dance off the stage as much as possible. I think uh, the stages are sucking us dry and we're losing our humanity as performers by being on stages too much. Because there's only so many times you can break the fourth wall before you're like, what is this wall even doing here? Like, if I always want to break it, why am I in a space that demands it? Sure. Right? Like, somehow the spaces really dictate the work. And it's important to question that. It's like, if I believe in community or, you know, bringing a certain type of work to audience, I have to not be in a theater anymore. <laughs> it's like, too bad. I really like clean spaces and sprung floors. But... But you're being pulled in another direction. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm inspired by Min Tanaka, who, um, you know, he said he doesn't even call what he does buto or dance anymore, and that he likes to go out and dance for unexpected, unexpected audiences. And I, I kind of want to be that old man when I grow up. When I grow up, I want to be an old Japanese man dancing for unexpected audiences. Beautiful. <laughs> Beautiful. Do you have any last words of wisdom or any last information about Mile Zero that you'd like to talk about before we, before we say goodbye? Well, just, you know, if people are coming through town, they should drop in and say hi. Um, I'm curating a dance crush series, which is like dance I like. So if you have something that would work in a studio environment similar to 303s with very minimal tech, uh, we had Ben Camino's Nudity Desire. It worked really well in here lengthwise um yeah i think up close personal dance is amazing in a tight venue and so uh yeah looking for for work for next year and yeah people should come visit more it gets lonely in the <laughs> west during our renaissance <laughs> oh, well i would be i would be happy to come back uh i've been speaking with uh Jerry Morita here at the Mile Zero Dance. 
company in uh, in Edmonton, Alberta. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Dirty Feet podcast is produced and hosted by Produit et animé par Alison Burns J.D. Papillon et Stéphanie Morin-Robert We have Mainline Theatre, Montreal Improv Theatre and Paula Flalo to thank. Merci pour le soutien. Vous pouvez visiter notre site web, écouter les derniers épisodes, lire notre blog, nous aimer sur Facebook et nous suivre sur Twitter. You can visit our website, listen to past episodes, read our blog, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Show us some love and help us spread the word. Montrez-nous un peu d'amour et aidez-nous à passer le mot.